stop to listen You can hear their hearts beating Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, the final forum on the consultation for the legal and constitutional reform to address the rights of indigenous peoples and Afro-Mexicans in the settler colonial state of Mexico, a constitutional reform that if happens, would elevate, uplift, and respect indigenous people's rights. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright The lone blue elk in the black of the night You can hear, you can hear The whisper in the valley mm-hmm. And you know when come a cunny blow type of legal and constitutional reform to Mexico's constitution would have a profound impact to the 17 million indigenous citizens. In fact, Mexico is the country with the largest population of indigenous peoples in the Americas and has over 78 distinct indigenous peoples, communities, and ordinations according to the country's census bureau. For the hour, Here on American Indian Airwaves, we speak with a longtime activist, cultural educator, and founder of the Similias del Pueblo Anahuameca School in the heart of the traditional territories of the Tongva, Chumash, and Tataviam peoples in Los Angeles County, California, where Los Angeles County has the largest urban indigenous population. Our guest for the hour was a participant, along with the school and over 200 fellow delegates, at the recent opening for the Forum on the Consultation for the Legal and Constitutional Reform to Address the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and Afro-Mexicans in Mexico, held this past August 4th of 2019 at the UCLA Labor Center. And now, longtime Indigenous educator, activist, and founder of Similias del Pueblo, Marcos Aguilar. Thank you, Larry. So uh, we were interested in participating in uh, constitutional level analysis and, uh, and reform process uh, to, to find ways to question how the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that was passed at the United Nations level would be honored and implemented across the continent where indigenous Mexicans are, and in this particular case within the state of Mexico. And uh, and so since last October, since last uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, we invited Marcos Matias Alonso, who was one of the founding members of the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, to come uh, visit us at Anahuacalmecac and witness the Indigenous Peoples Day celebration in the city of Los Angeles. 
And as a part of that visit, we discussed our concern for the implementation of the declaration in Mexico and uh, and across the, the diaspora of indigenous Mexicans across the continent. And we also asked about what what mechanisms were being developed to be able to to follow that implementation uh, again given since his expertise in the area of international law and, and in the declaration in particular and so he informed us that forum would be called for by the federal government and that he would advise us of that as the time came so we checked back with him and uh, our concern in particular around education and around language rights and the rights of Indigenous children and, and parents uh, is what is really motivating us and connecting us at, at this international level uh, because we we know that you know our families uh, many of which are are do include Native Americans that are indigenous to uh, the land north of the United States and Mexico border the majority of our families are from Mexico uh, and and others are from El Salvador and from mine families from Guatemala but the majority are from indigenous communities in Mexico and uh, we understand the connection between their their forced uh, economic and sometimes political migration to the United States and the the realities that the communities continue to face in Mexico that have not left or not migrated out and wanted to uh, be helpful with proposals that we have to make. One of the biggest questions that we had uh, and continue to have around uh, the indigenous rights of the indigenous peoples of, of Mexico is the right to language and education in schools that are located in predominantly uh, Nahuatl-speaking villages and pueblos, and, and even at the level of Nahuatl-speaking municipalities, and yet the schools do not teach Nahuatl. They don't teach the curriculum in Nahuatl. At best, they may have an exit program to transition students from speaking Nahuatl to speak Spanish from uh, the elementary grade levels, but definitely not at the secondary or high school levels uh, or even at the university levels. Is there really a pathway to education in, in maternal language in Nahuatl? And, and that... Uh, connected with our ongoing interest in strengthening our curriculum in Nahuatl and strengthening um, our role in preparing Nahuatl language teachers in, in Mexico and here, then that, that, that pushed us to be involved with this question about constitutional reform. Um, in August, uh, finally, of this year, we received word about the consultation process taking place in Mexico by that time, 59 forums had regional forums had been held in Mexico, and the last one had been declared to be held here in, in the United States to be able to reach indigenous Mexicans that are in the United States and Afro-Mexicanos uh, that are in the United States. And that was largely thanks to the efforts and advocacy of the Frente Indígena Oaxaqueño Binacional that uh, through FIOB and through uh, Dr. Gaspar Rivera in particular and the rest of the organization, advocated to be able to hold this forum here in Los Angeles. And uh, in reality, although it was the only forum that took place in all of the United States, it, in reality, because of the short notice, really only reached out to indigenous peoples within FIOB's network and in indigenous peoples within our network in Anahuacalmeca. And, um, and so people from as far away as Fresno came to participate through uh, the FIOB network and members of FIOB as well as uh, parents and students from our school that participated in, in the uh, forum that took place here in Los Angeles. 
the forum was the last forum uh, out of these 59 forums that took place regionally, and it addressed a very broad and extensive area of, of consultation that was introduced uh, through the forum that had to do with uh, the questions of the reform of the Mexican Constitution regarding the rights of indigenous peoples. And, um, you know, a pretty extensive process that extended itself to include in regular indigenous uh, Mexicans as well as technical experts in international law and in indigenous law, uh, as well as uh, traditional authorities or traditional uh, leaders from communities. And I, I think created impressively a process that is unlike any process that may have taken place anywhere, probably outside of Bolivia, uh, that addressed the attempt to harmonize international law with national law at the level of the con of constitutional reform. I mean, I, I can't imagine this process taking place in the United States. I can't imagine the United States considering a reform of its constitution and either adding an amendment or just changing the constitution itself to address the rights of self-determination uh, and autonomy of indigenous peoples and African-Americans, for example. And yet that's exactly what's happening in Mexico. Marcos, in talking about the indigenous peoples of Mexico, with approximately over 17 million indigenous peoples, or just over 20% of Mexico's citizens being indigenous, any type of constitutional reform that elevates, uplifts, and respect and respects indigenous peoples' rights would certainly be revolutionary and historical. Uh, and I can't help but think of, and as you mentioned, the state of Bolivia, who also has amended its constitution back in 2010. And part of that process is that Bolivia is now a plurinational uh, state that does respect indigenous peoples' basic rights. And one of the problematic terms and concepts used down in Mexico is this notion of multiculturalism, which does get used here in the United States. And it's a problematic term because it reduces indigenous peoples into the sub-ethnic group within the settler state. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak to some of the interventions that occurred here at this final forum. Yeah, that, that certainly was part of our our task um, as we left the forum that we uh, participated in here in Los Angeles at the UCLA Labor Center uh, in mid-August, the very next day, without any prior notice, we were asked on the day of the forum in Los Angeles to agree, first of all, to select commissioners and those commissioners would from the group, and then those commissioners would be uh, selected to travel to Mexico the very next day to participate in this national forum for an entire week in Mexico City. And so that was a huge uh, obligation for us to have to accept on a very short notice, but uh, four of us did. And, um, and there was a, um, you know, a solid commitment to seeing the process through at that national level, in this case, on behalf of the LA Forum. The themes that were addressed by the reform uh, consultation, the constitutional reform consultation included 16 distinct themes. And so these themes ended up being the, the uh, workshopping discussions about how to address that at a constitutional level. They included 
whether or not indigenous peoples and communities are subjects of a public right as opposed to individual rights. Whether or not, uh, well, the, to, the second theme was self-determination and autonomy at all the different levels. The third theme were the rights of indigenous women. The fourth was the rights of, uh, of indigenous children and adolescents and youth. Fifth was the Afro-Mexicano Pueblo or people and the recognition of their fundamental rights. Sixth was the territories and lands and resources and biodiversity and the environment of indigenous peoples. The seventh was the normative systems or laws or traditional customs of indigenous peoples and how those are coordinated across the, the larger legal framework. Uh, the eighth was the participation and representation of indigenous peoples at all levels of national decision-making and at the local level. The ninth was uh, the, the subject of free prior and informed consultation, and I'm going to get back to that. Uh, number 10 was uh, the cultural patrimony, traditional uh, knowledge, and intellectual property of the collective. Number 11 was uh, community-based education, indigenous education, and intercultural education. Twelfth was health and traditional medicine. Thirteen was indigenous communications and uh, community and intercultural communications. Fourteen was the uh, integral de development of uh, intercultural and sustainable development, sovereignty, and self-sufficiency. Number 15 was uh, indigenous migration, day laborers, agricultural day laborers, and indigenous populations that are living in urban context or in trans-border context or international context. And 16 was a new relationship between the state of Mexico with indigenous peoples and the institutional reform required uh, of these constitutional changes. So as you can see, there's a, a tremendous amount of material to cover in a very short time period by people who are, may not all be equally trained to deal with all of these subjects at such a high level. And you're listening to an interview with Marcos Aguilar. He is a cultural educator, activist, and founder of the Similias del Pueblo Anaomeca School in Los Angeles County, California, the heart of the traditional territories of the Tongva Gabreno peoples, the Tataviam and Chumash. He and the school recently participated in the final forum on the consultation for the legal and constitutional reform to address the rights of indigenous peoples and Afro-Mexicans in Mexico held this past August 4th, 2019 at the UCLA Labor Center. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. And now back to the interview. Well, I was curious, um, a couple of things. You mentioned you wanted to come back to free prior and inform consultation. And I was wondering maybe you can you can speak to that and what's um, why it's so paramount. Certainly um, something we've covered a, a lot on the show, but in this context, why it's so significant. And then also um, uh, the role of Afro-Indigenous uh, or Afro-Mexican peoples, um, because Mexico has a very long genealogy as a settler colonial state and its racism towards Af Afro-Indigenous peoples and and talk about why that's so important with some of these, with the intervention and the proposal for a constitutional reform. Well, so first of all, the, the challenge with the process itself that should both be celebrated uh, and critically analyzed is that the fact that 
that the government of Mexico can engage in a process of consultation and nobody's been murdered, nobody's been beheaded, there are no body bags being found anywhere as a result of this consultation is, I think, miraculous. Uh, given the state of violence that exists in indigenous communities as a result of the imposition of the settler state control and as a result of, you know, the narco trafficking that, that is responding to, to global dynamics and uh, any number of things, uh, the, the high degree of militarization of the rural zones and, and indigenous zones of Mexico, you know, is, is extremely really problematic in, in general. But the fact that this consultation process could take place and, and that did not directly happen in any of these forums and, and did not directly impact the decision-making process that I witnessed or the input process that I witnessed as a part of these uh, forums is amazing in and of itself. That the consultation rooted itself in the uh, history of the Accords of San Andres which were a result of the ceasefire of uh, agreement to the the resistance led by the uh, Zapatista Army of National Liberation in Chiapas is important also because it you know in some to some degree it picked up on what was left off mm. uh, decades ago and it brought to the table the same questions that the that the uh, consultation that I was a part of as a national coordinator uh, in my capacity here in Los Angeles. Uh, co-coordinator, I should say, uh, of the consultation that took place in 1999 through the uh, International Networks of Support for the ESETA, uh asked many of the same questions. You know? and, and so here we are again dealing with it, but now at a totally different level, at a totally different forum. So that, that is, and as one of the international observers and technical experts from the United Nations that was participating, I should say that uh, one of the members in my working group on self-determination uh, that was present in person at the forum here in Los Angeles was James Anaya, the former uh, former UN representative on indigenous issues. Uh, and he was there in person as one of the co-chairs of the convening. So uh, these are some pretty powerful issues that are being taken up at very high levels. And so the concern with it being promoted as a consultation of free, prior, and informed consent is that it's conflating the term consultation with with consent. Mm. And so, yes, obviously, we can only arrive to consent if there is a consultative process that gets us there. And how that is developed is, you know, although there are some guidances in the United Nations and, you know, we can find and refer to sustainable development guides that, that have addressed free, prior, and informed consent uh, in, in manuals that have been produced by the U.N., there isn't per se a way for an entire country to put its constitution on the debate block and engage people in that process. So to that degree, you know, Mexico is forging new, the Mexican government is forging new terrain and, um, and the technical experts that are supporting it are, are finding important pathways to be able to accomplish that. However, the repeated mantra that this is a, that this forum, this, this constitutional reform process, is a uh, free, prior, informed consent consultation conflates and confuses the issue of who is actually giving consent to these changes. Because ultimately, it's the Mexican Congress that's going to consent to these changes. Ultimately, it's the state government that has to approve these changes and not necessarily indigenous people. And so this, this consultation process 
involved indigenous peoples, but even that was problematic. Because if at the same time we are saying that the Constitution should respect the traditional uh, autonomy and self-determination of indigenous peoples in Mexico, but through the consultation process, those very same authorities of the indigenous peoples are not the people at the table, but individuals like myself, for example, who who are concerned, grassroots members, and who are members of you know important organizations that are doing good work, but we are not the traditional authorities in charge of deciding uh, international and national matters of concern of indigenous communities, of indigenous peoples. You know, to the degree that I can make some influence in the lives of our community here in Los Angeles and in our school community in particular is one thing. But there are, there are leadership levels and traditional authorities that are present in indigenous uh, communities and, and nations in Mexico that were not at the table here, that were not who was being consulted, first, first of all. Mm. And secondly, that were not who was being considered. And so in a, way is, in a way, this consultation process was talking about something that it wasn't practicing. For example, the right to language. At no point was there translation available for any of the indigenous languages, any of the 68 indigenous languages wow. that were simultaneously being defended uh, by this consultation process and this call for constitutional reform. Mm -hmm. There were no translation processes, uh, processes available, like headsets with translators, where, you know, kind of like at the United Nations, you can hear any one of seven different languages. There were no documents produced in other languages. All of the documents produced are in Spanish. Uh, and there weren't, there weren't even any documents or translation in English, because there are indigenous peoples who don't speak Spanish, mm -hmm. that speak English. And... In particular, when we talk about Afro-Mexicanos, there, there may also be Afro-Mexicanos in the United States that don't speak Spanish or an indigenous language. Right. So with regards to consultation, there's a, lot to, there's a lot to want still about this process. There's a really clear inability to engage the traditional authorities in this process. And with regards to language, there was also a shortcoming, a very serious shortcoming that as a part of the process, did not respect the strength and importance of the of the legal treatment of the 68 different indigenous languages in Mexico. In how complicated this process is going, does this set back the process? And then you know, I have to ask, um, you know, with other uh, struggles that we've covered, um, see down in Chiapas, uh, Chiapas, excuse me, with the new um, AMLO administration. Has um, the, sh the shift in presidency with the AMLO uh, administration complicated, uh, set back, or perhaps um, expedited this process? I don't think, I don't think that the, the, the nation state's agenda, or even just this presidency's agenda, can control the historic processes set in motion, both by the attacks on indigenous peoples, which this train represents in many ways, and other right. development projects. Uh, and in fact, just two days ago, an announcement was made that the national budget for indigenous peoples was going to be cut by 20% this year. Wow. So, so there's, th which is a huge blow, because there was a concern of it being cut last year. And as I estimated it, you know, the movie that Disney produced about indigenous Mexican 
Day of the Dead ceremonies that was, uh, you know, rampantly supported by Chicanos and Latinos across the United States for some reason, called COCO, had a larger budget than the entire budget for indigenous peoples in Mexico, right? So that's that's the perspective that we ought to have about this is mm. is that we're we're really talking about uh, completely different universes of impact in terms of financial questions. But then when it comes to the actual processes, like you don't you you it, it, to use the train metaphor, once the train leaves the station, it doesn't come back. This is not a two-way road. And so I think that there's no way for us to be talking about indigenous rights and, at a national and international level and that somehow be regressive. So I don't think there's a regressive aspect to it. I don't even think it can be manipulated mm. because I think that if we think about it within the limited concept of, of reform policy and politics, that these reforms nonetheless move the, move the needle forward, that it is, still, it is still positive movement to recognize self-determination. What's limiting about it and can still be contested is to say that self-determination is only recognized in as much as it doesn't interfere with the constitution of the, of the nation state of the settler colonial state. And so that's the debatable part, and that's the part that, that a stronger response has to come back on. But the fact of recognition at a, at a national level, constitutionally, of self-determination, I mean, the Black Panthers would be rolling over, uh, you know, in their graves for those of them that were killed or passed away to be thinking that the United States would recognize the self-determination of African-American uh, peoples in the United States. What I'm hearing is... As a managed form of self-determination, which sounds um, like the U.S. Uh, government's policy, its forced federalism policy of managing uh, indigenous sovereignty and self-determination within its politically defined colonial borders. And, and that's I think what- that's the attempt. Yeah, I think that's the attempt. And, and the reason why that this is still going to require a developmental process on our side as indigenous peoples uh, is that my experience in the forum um, was my responsibility was to take forward the message that we developed regarding self-determination and autonomy. Right. And so I took to the table the, the, the question of sovereignty, which, you know, at its face is, is a recognizable a, a priori or, or a necessary. So self-determination is described as the, the root of all indigenous rights. Right. Mm-hmm. Self-determination is what gives birth to everything else. But self-determination as roots do not exist in the air. They have to be planted into a Mother Earth, and that Mother Earth is sovereignty. And that is something that, that is not something that's wrong to proclaim it, but the way it's being manipulated maybe by settler state governments is certainly limiting. But that's not to not recognize that indigenous peoples are sovereign not because a government came and told us or because a king 400 years ago gave us a stick to hold that is some sacred staff now. That sovereignty exists because our peoples were birthed in this land or in these clouds or in these mountains or in these rivers or in these lakes or in these valleys or in these deserts. We were birthed here. Our people were birthed here. Not just me, the individual, was born here. Our people were birthed here, were born here. And that's the difference, in a way, as you asked about Afro-Mexicanos, that is still being lost on the distinction right. between indigenous peoples and Afro-Mexicanos. Right. 
Right. And so that that the fact that slavery created an entire population of the descendants of those slaves in in this continent and in Mexico in particular does not equate itself to the indigenous peoples who were here before and continue to be here. Mm-hmm. And so that's where that that's a second high level conflation of rights of self-determination and of and of autonomy that is lost in this process and and frankly lost in a lot of my compañeros there mm-hmm. and that's that that while we respect uh, progressively the rights of Afro-Mexicanos and the need for them to end all forms of racial discrimination and to recognize their uh, community autonomy and recognize their self-determination, that should not extinguish the, the, the ancestral and sovereign and uh, autochthonous land rights uh, of the indigenous peoples of the continent. You know, there's always going to be room for more people to live here, perhaps. And there's always, nobody's telling anybody to go back anywhere. But you can't ignore that there are indigenous peoples that continue to live and thrive and, and exist as, as sovereign nations across the continent. And, and yet, in a way, that conflation kind of reduces the question of self-determination to like a different kind of civil right, right. as opposed to a fundamental aspect of, of indigenous rights uh, as a as a what's being called in Mexico a public right. Could you make the argument that the conflation is a way to distract, if you will, from the the work that needs to be done in terms of indigenous self determination and indigenous sovereignty and, and indigenous rights? Yeah, I definitely because when we then come to the question of land and resources and mm-hmm. development you know, then then those questions and how they impact the constitutional reform became very clear, because at that point, then the government wants to retain as much control as possible. And in fact, there are recent stories about, uh, you know, wanting to basically uh, access uh, resources such as petroleum and indigenous land and, and, and how indigenous peoples ought to support global multinationals in the development of those resources. Uh, even though petroleum is nationalized in Mexico. And and so, you know, that becomes a lot more clear when it comes to issues of land rights and, mm-hmm. and development and sustainability and ecosystems. Right. Then it's clear that sovereignty is only an inch deep or that self-determination in a way is inch deep. And that was Marcos Aguilar. He is a longtime indigenous activist, cultural educator, and founder of Semillas del Pueblo, a Nauameca school in the heart of Los Angeles County, California, and within the traditional territories of the Tongva Gabarino, Tataviam, and Chumash peoples. He and several others were delegates in the most recent final forum on the consultation for the legal and constitutional reform to address the rights of indigenous peoples and Afro-Mexicans in Mexico held this past August 4th, 2019 at the UCLA Labor Center. That concludes the first part of this two-part interview here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Para que crezca una flor, para que conozcas 
Soul here on American Indian Airwaves. 
In the final segment of today's program, we continue our conversation on the final forum on the consultation for the legal and constitutional reform to address the rights of indigenous peoples and Afro-Mexicans in Mexico held this past August 4th of 2019 at the UCLA Labor Center. Our guest for the hour was one of over 200 fellow delegates participating in the recent final consultation held in Los Angeles County, California, within the traditional territories of the Tongva Gabarino, Tatabium, and Chumash peoples. A constitutional reform in Mexico would have a profound impact for the country's indigenous population of 17 million people. Mexico is the largest country with the largest population of indigenous peoples in the Americas, and there are over 78 distinct indigenous peoples, communities, and or nations, according to the country's Census Bureau. And now we continue with part two of our conversation on the Forum on the Consultation for the Legal and Constitutional Reform to Address the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and Afro-Mexicanos in Mexico, held this past August 4th of 2019 with longtime Indigenous cultural educator, activist, and founder of Similias del Pueblo Anahuamaca School in the heart of Los Angeles County, California. And now our continuing interview with Marcos Aguilar. Marcos, for our listeners, what's the next step now that the final forum on the consultation for the legal and constitutional reform to address the rights of indigenous peoples and Afro-Mexicans in Mexico has concluded? What happens now? Well, as it was explained to us at the culmination of this forum, and, and I didn't really get a chance to describe the, the, the beauty and the breadth of the forum itself. I mean, there were 3,000 indigenous Mexicans in this forum, all participating in workshops on these 16 different elements of indigenous rights. Mm. And the, the assemblies which culminated and interspersed the workshops and the forums were amazing. I mean, you know, and, and there wasn't a process where the assembly was, you know, where the assembly was able to change the recommendations, but there was a collection of input. Uh, there was a, a, a feedback of a sort. But again, it, it, was, it was really a consultation and not, not a forum to freely and, and properly secure consent. Um, and so that being said, it was still an amazing process. What was explained to us after this forum was that the proposals that, that were drawn from this forum would be presented to the president of Mexico, and that was done the very next day in Durango, Mexico, on, on the uh, recognition of International Indigenous Peoples Day on the 13th of August. Mm. And um, then the president of Mexico is supposed to uh, consider those proposals and begin working on le- a legislative proposal to the Congress of Mexico. And in the meantime, uh, a 30-strong a, a member interna- of international experts on indigenous rights, which includes at least two indigenous peoples, and so I think you know, the numbers say a lot there also. But uh, there's an international group of, uh, of uh, indigenous rights experts that include James Anaya and Marcos Matias Alonso are going to be working on, final, on, on how to turn all of the recommendations of all the 16 aspects of, of law into a constitutional a language that would actually be the language of reform in the Constitution of Mexico 
that would actually then be voted on by by the Mexican Congress and then acted on as a reform. That's the next step. Uh, on our front, as a as a local forum in Los Angeles, uh, we are interested in continuing the work of deepening this discussion and creating uh, continuing possibilities of, um, of advancement of of these rights and of the the consideration of our rights. And importantly, at an international aspect uh, level, also because there's a there wasn't much room to consider the rights of indigenous Mexicans outside of Mexico. Mm. You know, to complicate the matters further, how do indigenous peoples from Oaxaca or Guerrero or Michoacan deal with the indigenous peoples of Baja California, for example, which is a tourist, you know, heavily. Uh, heavily developed tourist zone in some parts or an agricultural zone in other parts. And they are coming in as indigenous peoples into other indigenous territory, which is very contested. And so what what rights do each have as indigenous peoples? Or when indigenous peoples move to Mexico City or to Tijuana or to other major cities, how do they retain indigenous rights at that point? And, and what, what then becomes the relationship to those public rights and the, the individual rights? And how are those extended to those of us that are in the United States or even those indigenous people that are two or three generations away from being considered indigenous anymore? As I was speaking to my favorite uh, local taquero, I asked him if he spoke Nahuatl because he, he's from Puebla and his specialty is food from Puebla. And that's a very you know, uh, highly populated Nahuatl strong uh, state in Mexico. And he said, well, no, I don't. Uh, I said, well, do you consider yourself indigenous? He said, no, my parents were indigenous and my grandparents were indigenous, but I'm not anymore. I said, well, how did you determine that? He said, well, when they brought light into my pueblo, we stopped being indigenous because that, that we, never, we no longer live the way we used to, you know, basically based on fire and, and, and the stars and the sun. And so those kinds of transitions and, and obviously... That's just a, a quick conversation between two people. Right. But, but there really is a, a lack of clarity with how many generations in, indigenous peoples have to lose language and culture and spirituality and, and land uh, bases in order to stop being indigenous or to be considered other than or mestizo, mm-hmm. uh, even though there, is, there really isn't um, a, a, a process that was a self-selective mm-hmm. process. So one of the important international recognitions about indigenous peoples is that we recognize ourselves, first and foremost, as indigenous. And then secondly, that our communities accept us as indigenous members of the community. And and that is uh, something that's important that that we have to continue to work on. And how we continue to embrace and empower Afro-Mexicanos at an international and national level is also an ongoing process of relationship building and and and. Uh, alliance building that I think is important for us without losing sight of the original sovereignty of indigenous peoples and how we impact that process from the international sector because it's still important to recognize that there are some privileges we have uh, even if it's you know being slightly outside a rifle range uh, is that we have some privileges from this side of the border that we can that we can exert to hopefully help um, but it, it continues to be a complicated process. It's at the same time a historic opening of possibility of ongoing work. You talked about language, education or living knowledge, relationality and indigeneity, 
and the notion of place and and indigenous peoples are place-based peoples and you know the language um, helps transmit the culture right that living knowledge um, intergenerationally and I was wondering if you could put that into uh, the context of the work that you do at the school, because uh, as our listeners may or may not realize that the school is actually the longest running indigenous school in the history of Los Angeles County, perhaps um, in all of Southern California. Well, sure. I know has been around since 2002. And uh, first and foremost, we opened with the, with uh, by requesting the blessings of uh, Chief Yana Vera Rocha, who has since passed. Um, and through a lot of work that we did with her in saving the sage fields in Rwanda to saving the Kuruvangna Springs uh, back in the 90s, uh, we, we came to understand and appreciate the importance of recognizing as a matter of protocol the indigenous peoples of Los Angeles, first and foremost, and and in that particular time, uh, those people with, which we were working with at the time, um, and continue to extend that respect for protocol uh, with uh, with elders since then uh, of the Tongva people and nations, and um, and are looking forward to to strengthening and deepening that that understanding as we move into as a school looking into. Uh, re-envisioning, for example, the Southwest Museum. Uh, the Autry recently released a uh, RFI on what to do with the future of the Southwest. Mm. And uh, we, with the support of the uh, Los Angeles City and County American Indian Native American Commission, um, they issued us a letter of support for our proposal, submitted a call for respecting the place that it is and where it is and what its history was and centering indigenous peoples there. And this we see as this as an extension of the the long-lasting uh, community that we've built around the Nahuacalmecac uh, here in, in El Sereno. And the recognition that that institution of the Southwest Museum was, a, a you know, in a way, a, a gravedigger's paradise of collecting artifacts from across the continent and brought for the Midwesterners' um, viewing pleasure, uh, which up to the 70s apparently included exposed, uh, uh, what are they called, exposed uh, exhibitions of our ancestors' remains. And and so there was a protest in 1971 to try to stop that. Right. And they did something about that shortly after. But but this was, this was an institution that was based on a myth about Los Angeles, the mission-based myth, the, the uh, land of plenty myth, and the myth of the vanishing Indian. Right. And so we're proposing as, a, as an extension of Anahuacalmecac that that myth be reconsidered uh, as a false myth, first of all, and that the realities of indigenous peoples of the Americas and our existence here in Los Angeles is, is one that should be celebrated by the, by the city and county of L.A. Right. And if there is a future in the Southwest Museum, it should look beyond the Southwest. It should look towards the beauty of the indigenous communities that are thriving around L.A. at our successes at transforming uh, uh, Columbus Day into Indigenous Peoples Day, at our successes at being able to celebrate even now over 500 years later, and at the thriving international community that exists around uh, L.A. that is largely, uh, in many ways, even funded by uh, California Native Nations. And so, um, you know, in terms of place, we think first and foremost, this land is Tongva land. Uh, first and foremost, any future for institutions here 
And we hope to set this by example, as we have in our own school and as we are with our proposed project at the Southwest Museum, that the land has to remain in the hands of the, the Tongva, the Tatavim, the Shumash, wherever their particular land territories are, and, and that we continue to support that. But that the institutions and the buildings that are uh, uh, publicly available ought to begin serving the indigenous peoples of, of, the, of the city and county of Los Angeles in a way that doesn't exist right now. You know, the Olympics are around the corner in 2028. Where can you point to that indigenous nations are celebrated in Los Angeles? Where will these people from around the world be, be turned to to go learn about the indigenous peoples here? At the Natural History Museum, right next to the dinosaurs, at the, uh, at the, La Plas- at the Olvera Street, right. Uh, right next to the, the church? Right. Or where? Where exactly do you go? The Autry Museum, right. right next to the Cowboys. You know, I mean, there there is no place that is indigenous centered, right. and and so we're hopeful that 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 place based knowledge can be centered there mm-hmm. in a way that harmonizes and advances the cause of of the Tongva tribes as well as uh, the the Tataviam and, and Shumash relatives in this area, and in a way that is embracing of. Uh, a larger indigenous people's community that is either here through forcible relocation or through economic uh, migration or immigration that is also a result of war. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves, an interview with Marcos Aguilar. He is a longtime indigenous activist, cultural educator, and founder of Similias del Pueblo, a Nauameca community school in Los Angeles County, California, within the traditional territories of the Tongva Gabarino, Tataviam, and Chumash peoples. He's been speaking on the final forum on the consultation for the legal and constitutional reform to address the rights of indigenous peoples and Afro-Mexicans in Mexico held this past August 4th of 2019. And now back to the interview. Let me ask this, with the city of Los Angeles then, you know, they every 10 years, um, cities um, revise, reconstitute, you know, their general plan, which they used to call the master plan. And, and I also know the city of Los Angeles a few years ago revised um, or created their uh, Green Future Sustainability Plan. And was you or anyone from the school um, consulted and participated in the most recent incarnation, if you will, of the city of Los Angeles's uh, general plan? And if so, in what ways? And if not, how much more critical is the work that you and the school do and the services and the, the, just the community support that you provide? No, I wasn't consulted, and I don't know who might have been consulted. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is that even an agency like the Los Angeles Unified School District, which is legally mandated to engage in consultation, does not engage in consultation. We're talking, these are funds that are billions of dollars of funds that do not go through a consultation process. I know, as a matter of fact, that the county's consultation process is far short of, of meeting uh, indigenous people's expectations, and that very few people, I mean less than a handful, if at all, participated in consultation with, for example, the, the sustainability plan of the, the county of Los Angeles. And so there, these are areas for us to begin to, 
take into consideration as priorities and, and how consultation takes place is, is also something that should be of concern because we, we know that traditional authorities and those recognized by the state agencies ought to be included in consultation and are not yet, are not right now. But even grassroots leaders like, like yourselves and, and others, uh, myself included, ought to be able to have a, part, a, a, a way to be able to engage, and especially with the, the number of California Native nations that still go uh, as federally unrecognized, and the number of indigenous peoples from Mexico and Central America that are in Los Angeles that do not get uh, respected as indigenous peoples when it comes to consultation and when it comes to other indigenous rights that are internationally recognized as, as being our rights. Uh, there is no mechanism by which to seek the implementation of the declaration even though the state of California adopted it symbolically, you know, you know, now maybe a decade ago, and um, and so that that's all ongoing work, and and we think that the process of uh, taking the district district to task regarding consultation and and putting this process itself of the uh, Autry Museum through consultation is, uh, with the with the Southwest Museum is an important process, and and our white allies ought to take heed. And, and other allies from other uh, cultural sectors ought to take heed that they should respect the fact that we have an internationally recognized right to free, par, and informed consent. And they ought not allow these processes to take place without that as an a priori step in the process. There, there can't be another part to the process that makes it right if it didn't begin with the consultation of indigenous people. Marcos, for our listeners that have been listening to the entire interview, do you have any contact information for them, a website, email address, etc., in case our listeners, they want, want to become allies or they're interested in the work that the school does? Uh, what kind of contact information can you provide for our listeners? Sure. Our website is www.digni.com. D-A-D.org. That's mm-hmm. Dignity in Spanish. D-I-G-N-I-D-A-D.org. And I can be emailed uh, or, uh, yeah, I can be emailed uh, at info at dignidad.org, which is that same website, info, I-N-F-O. We're also on Facebook, uh, and we have other links and other sources that we can share via Facebook as well. Uh, you can look up our school's name. is Anahuacalmecac World School. And, uh, and we're on Facebook, or look me up on Facebook or Twitter uh, under my name, Marcos Aguilar, and I can uh, follow up as well. Marcos, I just want to say how I thank you for joining us here on American Indian Airwaves. I know you're extremely busy between running the school community, uh, obligations and family and, and whatnot. It's always an honor and a pleasure to speak with you and um and uh, share those circles and, and life struggles. And so again, thank you for joining us here on American Indian Airwaves. And we want to encourage our listeners to visit the website at www.dignidad.org if they want more information. So thank you again for joining us here on American Indian Airwaves. No, I, I appreciate this, and we're we're you know hopeful that um, that families in the Los Angeles area or within your 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 listening area are if you're interested in an education from kinder to twelfth grade for your children, uh, look us up. Uh, we are uh, we're interested in in growing and expanding and including other languages of instruction as well. 
but certainly centering and prioritizing and privileging the indigenous as a part of the experience of your child's uh, school age uh, life. And and there, there shouldn't be a, a need to put kids through an institution for 12 or 13 years that um, that traumatizes them. And, and so hopefully we can be a part of uh, American Indian and Indigenous families' solutions to how to organize education for their children. The moment of silence is over. And that was Marcos Aguilar, longtime Indigenous activist, cultural educator, and founder of Semillas del Pueblo Anamameca School, located in Los Angeles County, California, and within the traditional territories of the Tongva, Gabarino, Tataviam, and Chumash peoples. He was speaking on the final forum on the consultation for the legal and constitutional reform to address the rights of indigenous peoples and Afro-Mexicans in Mexico held this past October 4th of 2019. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Marcos Aguilar. For more information on the school, you can visit their website at www.diginidad.org. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Kupa Aina, Quinto Sol, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. is over.